and welcome to our latest BMJ Clinical Podcast. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. I help look after BMJ Best Practice and BMJ Learning. This podcast is about meliodosis. The purpose is to help you recognise, report and refer affected patients. Meliodosis is a tropical disease that causes fever, pneumonia and abscesses. Its clinical course is variable and patients can relapse sometimes with the sudden rupture of a visceral abscess. This has earned it the dramatic nickname, the Vietnamese time bomb. Can it be diffused? I'm glad that we have help at hand to advise us. Dr. David Dance is Senior Clinical Research Fellow and Consultant Microbiologist at Lao Oxford Massad Hospital in Venchan in Laos. So, David, you're, you're welcome. Could you tell us what exactly is this disease? So it's a bacterial infection caused by a bug that lives in the soil uh, or water in tropical areas and can get into uh, the body by various routes, including inoculation through the skin, uh, ingestion in contaminated water, um, or by inhalation of aerosols, for example, during really heavy rainstorms. It causes localized infection in some patients and in others it disseminates, it can cause blood poisoning, it can cause pneumonia and it can cause abscesses and the mortality rate is is really quite high. Um, If you don't treat it properly then uh, mortality rate will be 80% or more. If you do treat it with antibiotics, um, the right antibiotics, then the mortality rate's about 30-40% in Southeast Asia, but down to 10-15% to 15% in uh, Northern Australia, where obviously the uh, intensive care facilities are rather better developed. Okay, and how would you recognise a typical patient? Well, it's actually very difficult. Uh, but the disease has been nicknamed the great mimicker or the remarkable imitator over the years. Obviously, you'd expect patients to have a history of travel to an area where the disease is endemic, particularly Southeast Asia or Northern Australia. Uh, But we think it's uh, probably more common than is recognized in other parts of the tropics in sub-Saharan Africa or in Central and South America. You would, would expect them to have a fever. And uh, they may also have localized evidence of infection uh, in the shape of abscesses, particularly in places like the lung, the liver, or the spleen, and prostate in men. But they may have no localized infections. They may just have a a fever and uh, no localization at all. Really difficult to distinguish melioidosis from, for example, TB, Uh, or staphylococcal infections. The other clue would be that the patients are likely to have some form of underlying disease. About 75-80% of patients will have some pre-existing abnormality that suppresses their immune system. And the strongest link of all is with diabetes. Diabetes probably increases your relative risk of getting melioidosis by 10 to 20 times. And so that would be another clue. Okay, thank you. And what tests would you request if you did suspect the disease? Well, the most important test is a blood culture. And uh, about 50-60% of patients who who are diagnosed with melioidosis by culture have positive blood cultures. If there are abscesses and, and they're accessible and you can send pus, then that's the next most important thing. 
if patient has pneumonia and you can get good quality sputum sample, then that's also worth culturing. It can be grown in the urine. It's often there in, in relatively small numbers. And we also, in an endemic area uh, like Laos, we use throat swabs as well. And in fact, we quite often find that a throat swab is the only positive sample. But in order to grow Burkholderiae pseudomaliae from a throat swab, you need to be using selective media, special media for Burkholderiae pseudomaliae, uh, which are not usually available in, in labs in non-endemic areas. You can look for antibodies to the organism, but in an endemic area, that's, that's uh, a problem because of the high background seropositivity rates. In somebody who's traveled from a non-endemic area to an endemic area, if they have high levels of antibody to Burkholderia pseudomaliae, that's quite a strong indication that they, they have certainly been exposed and may have melioidosis. The serological tests are getting better, uh, but they're not widely available. And there are antigen detection tests coming onto the market. Okay, thank you. That's really helpful. And moving on to treatment, I wonder what is the mainstay of treatment? Well, in somebody who's really sick with septic shock, obviously they need um, very aggressive and intensive supportive treatment. And they usually, uh, if, if somebody's got septic shock, they should be managed in an intensive care unit with fluid replacement, et cetera, et cetera. All, all the things that you would do for any septic patient. In terms of antibiotics, there have been a series of uh, randomized controlled studies done in Thailand over the last 30 years that have given us quite a good evidence base for how to, how to treat malioidosis. So we would usually start with an intensive phase of intravenous treatment using uh, either keftazidine, which is the treatment of choice, or in patients who are really sick, uh, some people would use carbapenems like meropenem, and they would give those for a minimum of 10 uh, to 14 days. And in, in some places and in some cases where patients have big undrained abscesses or infection of the bones and joints, you may need to carry on with those intravenous antibiotics for four to six weeks. The disease has this nasty tendency to relapse if you don't then go on and give a long course of oral antibiotics, what we call the eradication phase, because the organism has been disseminated all around the body often, and it can come back. You can get a relapse of infection if you don't then give the oral antibiotics. And the, the antibiotic of choice for the eradication phase is cotrimoxazole or um, cetrin or Bactrim, uh, as it's known to some people. And that should be given for at least 12 weeks um, to reduce the risk of re relapse to less than 5%. Um, in some patients with extensive disease, we'd give it for 20 weeks. If patients can't take cotrimoxazole or if the organism is resistant, then coamoxiclav or augmentin is the next choice. Okay, thank you. And do you need to take any special isolation measures? Well, in the countries where the disease is endemic, patients tend to be nursed in open wards. And actually, there have been very few instances of melioidosis spreading from person to person. It's rather odd that you would expect that it might well spread from one person to another, but the evidence is that it doesn't tend to do that. But in a country where the disease is not endemic, and where facilities are available to nurse patients in isolation, it would be sensible to do that. Not just to 
reduce further the risk of, of transmission uh, from person to person, but also to reduce the risk of contamination of the environment. This is an organism that comes from the environment and potentially in suitable places there's a risk that the environment could be become contaminated from a patient. And so we would normally in Europe or uh, North America, we would tend to nurse patients in isolation until they were culture negative. Okay, thank you. And do you need to refer on to a specialist unit or does it depend on the particular context or institution that you're working in? Yeah, absolutely. It depends on the uh, context in which you're working. Uh, I think, you know, these patients have severe infection and if it's the norm locally for such patients to be managed by uh, infectious disease physicians, then it's sensible uh, for them to do that. Obviously, in a non-endemic area, most doctors will never come across a case of this disease in their lifetime. And so the management is really quite specialised. Having said that, there are experts around the world who are very happy to advise uh, about the management of patients. And there's nothing particularly special that you need in terms of technology. I mean, it's basic uh, antibiotics that are widely available and intensive care and supportive management that's widely available. The other thing is that if you do come across a case of melioidosis uh, or suspect that you have a case of melioidosis, then the other people to involve are your local public health doctors, the health protection unit or team in the in the UK, on whatever arrangements exist locally elsewhere, for two reasons. One is because there is a very small risk of environmental contamination and an even smaller risk of person-to-person spread, and so they would want to know about this disease. But the other thing is that it is on the list of agents that might be used as a weapon by uh, terrorists. And so it's important that uh, health authorities are alerted to the occurrence of cases of of melioidosis so that they can investigate that possibility. To be honest, it's far more likely that a case in a traveller has been acquired from the environment while they were travelling. But in order to make sure that we don't miss the first case in a terrorist incident, public health authorities should be notified. Okay, thank you. That's, that's really helpful. Moving on to differential diagnosis. I wonder what are the common differentials of this disease? Well, I've already mentioned some of them. It can be very difficult to tell melioidosis apart from uh, other systemic bacterial infections like staphylococcal uh, sepsis. In parts of Southeast Asia, we often see very similar manifestations in patients with Klebsiella infections. And the other big differential is, uh, is TB. When melioidosis infects the lung, it tends to cavitate. It often affects the upper lobes. And so patients can present with a chronic pneumonia, which is very similar clinically to TB, but of course smear negative. Sometimes patients can be dually infected with both TB and uh, Burkholderia pseudomelii, as some of the conditions that predispose you to melioidosis also predispose you to TB. And and again, diabetes is the obvious example. Those are the main uh, differentials. Okay, thank you. Um, And I wonder... Are there any other, besides the ones that you've mentioned, any other common pitfalls in either the diagnosis or the management of this disease? So I think the biggest pitfall of all is not 
thinking of the diagnosis in the first place. And worldwide, we think that melioidosis is hugely underdiagnosed, partly because in many of the places that it, it occurs, um, laboratory services are very limited. And this is a disease primarily in endemic areas of the rural poor, who are the last people to have access to good diagnostics. Doctors, on the whole, tend not to be taught about melioidosis at medical school, although we're trying to change that. And laboratory technicians, where laboratories exist, often don't get taught how to identify Burkholderia pseudomelii. They know what E. coli looks like, they know what Staph aureus looks like, but anything which is a, an oxidase positive gram-negative rod, they, have it, they tend to lump together as something like pseudomonas species, and they think of them as environmental contaminants. So if you've thought of the um, diagnosis as being a possibility, it's really important to try and alert the laboratory to the fact that you're thinking of melioidosis so that they can look extra hard for the organism. In terms of management, the, the organism is intrinsically resistant to many antibiotics that get used empirically to treat patients with sepsis or with pneumonia or with abscesses. For example, keftriaxone is widely used around the world for empirical treatment of sepsis. Melioidosis doesn't respond very well to uh, keftriaxone, and it, it doesn't respond at all to aminoglycosides like gentamicin. But it does respond, albeit relatively slowly, to keftazidine or to carbapenems. And so it's really important, once you've thought of the possibility, to give an antibiotic that is going to be active against Burkholderia pseudomelii. Okay, thank you. That's that's really helpful and really clear. I wonder, are there any other questions that you typically get asked about this disease by doctors? Is there anything that we've missed? Well, I think one of the um, first things that usually happens when a, a patient with suspected melioidosis or even confirmed melioidosis is admitted to hospital in a non-endemic area is that all of the staff in the laboratory are worried about becoming infected and uh, many of the, the clinical staff may also be worried, uh, doctors and nurses that have, that have dealt with the patients. And that's perhaps not surprising when you look at the reputation that this organism has. It's what we would call a, a hazard group three pathogen, so it needs handling in high levels of laboratory containment. And it's on the US select agent list as a potential bio threat and uh, working on the organism in, in uh, most uh, countries in North America and, and Europe is highly regulated. In actual fact, as I've already said, it's not an infection that tends to spread from person to person. And even laboratory acquired infections, although they have occurred, are few and far between. There are only two really well described of, uh, laboratory acquired infections in the literature. So one of the first things I usually tend to do is to tell people to calm down, not to worry. The risks of transmission to other people are very slim. Uh, the risks to laboratory workers are relatively slim. There are guidelines uh, about doing risk assessments uh, when people have potentially been exposed to Burkholderia pseudomelii. And very, very occasionally, it might be necessary to, to think about giving antibiotic prophylaxis. But um, that, in my experience, is something that rarely is necessary. And within endemic areas like Laos, like Thailand, like Northern Australia, people are very used to, to managing these patients. And uh, they're often managed in the open ward. The 
laboratory isolates are often dealt with in on the open bench and yet we don't see infection amongst healthcare staff we don't see infections in laboratory staff okay thank you at last question back to diagnosis again if you had one single piece of advice to give to doctors about diagnosis what would it be if you see a patient with a fever returning from a melioidosis endemic area particularly if they're diabetic or on long-term steroids think of melioidosis and try and rule it out by doing the appropriate cultures blood culture pus if you can get it sputum if you can get it and discuss with your local infectious disease doctor okay and Absolutely, last question. Can you run through the uh, typical countries once again? Sure, yes. Well, we know that the uh, disease is endemic throughout Southeast Asia. So Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar. It's also present in the far north of Australia. But actually, we think it's probably fairly widespread um, elsewhere in the tropics. Uh, We know it's present in the Caribbean, in some countries in South America, Brazil and Colombia, but probably in others. And there are just sporadic cases in sub-Saharan Africa as well. And again, it may be commoner there than, than people realize. And probably the biggest burden of all, albeit one that has yet to be fully revealed, is in the Indian subcontinent, particularly in India, uh, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. Okay, thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope that you will be able to put what you've learned into action to better recognise, report and refer affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on meliodosis. Thank you once again. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.